0: Hi, I'm Wendy Dean.
1: And I'm Simon Talbot.
0: And this is Moral Matters. So today we're going to be talking with Dr. Jane Kim. She is an emergency room physician who practiced at the State University of New York downstate in Brooklyn during the height of the pandemic
1: in March
0: of 2020.
1: And this is probably more relevant than ever because we're now seeing COVID-19 cases spike once again uh, as part of this pandemic. And uh, Jane worked at the front lines and experienced some of the problems with limitations on staff, stuff, and space the first time this happened.
0: And it's an important conversation about how that impacted her both professionally and personally, and what she believes we need to change so that we can all take care of patients better and take care of ourselves in a way that's sustainable. So, Jane, uh, thank you so much for joining us today on Moral Matters. Could you give us a little bit of, like, set the scene for us about where you work and what it was like in March?
2: Yeah, Wendy, thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, it's such a pleasure to talk to you again um, March. I guess I should start a little bit before, because... Um, it was my last vacation that I took, so end of February, um, I went to go see my best friend from college in Vancouver to go snowboarding with her. So exciting. Then I decided to call an audible and then join my friend who was in Jackson Hole. Uh, so had a great time snowboarding, and we were watching the world fall apart, basically, um, away from home. And the people I was with at Jackson Hole were my emergency medicine colleague and his wife, who happens to be a um, ICU critical care intensivist um, at our sister hospital. So we're all three of us are sitting there. I could distinctly remember we're like sitting in this hole in the wall uh, Thai place, and we're watching the news on the TV while eating our noodles, and we're like oh, we should plan on going home soon because the world's falling apart and we might not be able to get back home, number one. Um,
0: What date was that?
2: That's probably, yeah, that's probably um, March 10th or something like that Mm. Uh, because I remember my first shift back was March 12th, distinctly. I was like, wow, and... We had this like really naive view of what was happening, even on a healthcare level. Uh, our protocols at that time were that the attending can only see these uh, people of interest, uh, COVID potential patients. Um, our residents, our trainees, should not be exposing themselves to these patients. So. Only the attending, so supervising physicians can see these patients. Uh, This was completely naive because COVID at that time was everywhere. And if you talk to any one of the epidemiologists um, in New York at that time, they tell you that March 15 was the peak um, of what we experienced. So March 12th, we were deep in COVID and... It was palpable. When I walked into my first shift, people were there not with the typical fever, cough, shortness of breath. It was abdominal pain. It was, uh, you know, diarrhea. It was all these other symptoms that clearly these patients were in pro in close proximity to people that were COVID positive, classic COVID positive, and were presenting clearly with a different set of symptoms at that time. Um, So it was very palpable uh, that we had no clue what we were doing, which was incredibly scary. Um,
0: Yeah, I can imagine because it's one thing walking into a situation where you're clear about what the disease process is and what the next steps are. But when you're walking in there, not even knowing what it's going to look like when you get there, never mind how you'll address it. Right. That's not a that's not a situation that any of us has ever trained for or is used to.
2: No. I think, you know, we're all trained that if you studied hard and you knew exactly what was going to happen uh, and you do all the right things, you'll solve the problem, right? Uh, I think we were never exposed to the situation, no matter what you did or what you thought it was, you're you're not going to be able to fix it. So it was very challenging. It was very challenging.
1: Jane, so tell us how things evolved from that early March through later March and in, in April. What happened as time went on?
2: Yeah. So I think the first week, that, that March 12th week or two, was this very mild... Um, syndrome of people with mild fever, cough, abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, like I said, diarrhea kind of symptoms. Then it took a sharp left turn and we saw a tremendous amount of patients coming in with hypoxia, clear hypoxia, like oxygen levels in the 60s, uh, things that we just never saw before.
0: And normally oxygen levels are in the 90s.
2: Yeah, absolutely. 90s, 90, we want typically over 95. Uh, but these patients were very hypoxic, very sick. And it wasn't, like I said, what we knew in the news, like older patients. We were seeing younger patients, people in their 30s, 40s, uh typically young and healthy previous to this event. Um, so that was that was the challenging part. It just just went in a very crazy direction where we were not expecting uh, young people to show up, all these other different symptoms. and I felt a little overwhelmed at that point.
0: And what was it like for you, seeing those patients coming through your emergency room and knowing that they were different? Than what was being portrayed in the news and that maybe maybe the public wasn't getting the story that you were seeing and that you knew was the natural disease course
2: I think what immediately hit me was we didn't know what was happening uh, I, I don't I didn't immediately think oh this was fake news or this was media spin I mean that's not where my brain went my brain went somewhere we just have no clue, right? Um, The information is not out there. And we as a scientific community, as a healthcare community, we had no idea what we were dealing with. Therefore, the information wasn't out there because immediately, because there was a vacuum of information, centralized information from like the CDC or the WHO or some kind of scientific global healthcare body, I think immediately you saw Facebook groups and WhatsApp chats start develop uh, inherently on their own to kind of bring together all the personal experiences that these frontline physicians were experiencing across the world. So it was incredibly organic in the way information started uh, coming together, and it was very clear that People's experiences, emergency medicine physicians' experiences across the world were seeing the same things. Uh, This was not clearly just fever, cough, uh, shortness of breath. This was a myriad of symptoms which now is is reflected, but that was known very early on and that people were experiencing hypoxia that we had never experienced before. And now the question became, at that early point, what do we do about it? because whatever we were doing, it wasn't working. <laughs> um, I think our colleagues in Queens were intubating early, and which is like they were p- placing a breathing tube, which is our typical management. For someone who comes to the emergency room, can't breathe, we would place a breathing tube to assist their breathing. But that wasn't possibly the right solution. Um maybe there was something else we had to consider because that wasn't changing their clinical picture as, as much as they wanted it to. Um, so there was something else going on, and I think as, as a group, as an inherent um, global group on Facebook or WhatsApp, these, these chats, we were trying to all figure it out.
1: So what did your emergency room look like as, as March sort of progressed?
2: It was interesting. I mean, I think if anyone's done public health anywhere else in the world, um, you, you kind of do hot zone, cold zones, right? You could divide and conquer, kind of like, keep right. the well people away from the sick people. I mean, that went completely to the wayside. I mean, it it was all hot. It was It was, the place was lava, right? So there was no point in separating hot zone, cold zone. It was only a matter of really sick versus less sick. Uh, Mm -hmm. and at that point, I think our, we didn't have adequate testing. So we weren't even testing people that we weren't admitting to the hospital, but clearly we knew had COVID. So we would say, Hey, go home. You clearly have the symptoms. The chances are good that you have it self-isolate for 14 days. Um, who knew if that really happened, but um, we couldn't test everyone. We just didn't have adequate testing. We could only test those that we were admitting to the hospital. So in the main ER, we had all the people that were oxygenating less than, I would even say, high 80s. We wouldn't even, we wouldn't even consider anyone for the main ER if they were starting uh, our, their saturation was higher than 88, 89. We would most likely send them home if they were oxygenating at that level, which is a little bit crazy for those training because they know that that's not okay. But that was the situation. Um, and then in our critical care area, we had patients, like I said, sat like in the oxygen saturations of like lower than 60, which was insane.
1: How were you managing with... Um volume of physicians and PPE and things like that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I have to tell you, honestly, our hospital system did a great job of ensuring that we did have enough PPE um, for the physicians. Not in the technical way that we were taught to don and doff PPE as, as medical students, right? I mean, they're one-time use, you should never reuse your PPE, but in this situation, yes, we were reusing some of our PP to um, keep our stores, but if I needed it in 95 mass, because it was soiled, there was never a, a situation that I couldn't find one. So for that, I'm grateful. but yes, we did utilize PP in a way that was probably not, uh, you know, uh, ideal in a way.
0: So it, it sounds like both, it, it, there, were, there were multiple things in your training that you had to compromise or that you, had to, that you had to adjust. As the surge happened, you used PPE differently, you approached patient care differently because there weren't the resources, the staff stuff and space to take care of them. And so you had to make different choices than you would if you could treat to the gold standard.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: What was that like as a physician facing that compromise? Scary. <laughs> yeah, but
2: um yeah, I think we're just not as emergency medicine physicians, we're very agile and we're used to compromise and we're used to working with half of our puzzle pieces missing and right. trying to figure out what to do next. Um, I think we are that's part of our specialty. Like, we're really good at it. Mm-hmm. Um, but this was on a whole new level. This was like, if you're a video gamer, this was like boss level. Like, what is happening? Because it was extremely challenging. Not only did we not completely understand the clinical situation, which I think as a physician is extremely challenging. Like, if I don't know what I'm looking for and how to treat it appropriately what am I doing? Like, how am I fulfilling my job? That was the first problem from a from a physician standpoint. Second one was, you know, are we doing, with all these talks about, you know, the system being overwhelmed and things like that, are we doing the right thing for the system and future patients? That was weighing on our mind. I think we were also thinking, are we doing the right things for ourselves and our own family? Because that's hard. I mean, I can tell you my own personal story, but also all my colleagues who, you know, couldn't go home because they were so afraid they were taking, they were going to take this virus back to their families. I mean, that's challenging on a personal level. I mean, and I think months from now, now that we're months away, you know, the mental impact of what happened, that was this, that's, that's a later thing that we didn't even know was going to happen, you know. A lot of a lot of challenges along the way.
0: And when you say the mental impact of that, is it just, I can imagine it's a combination of things, but I can imagine it's both that question of, I, I, I didn't know what I was facing, what to do about it. I wish I could have gone back and done things differently, but also just the sheer volume of patients that you saw who were in distress.
2: Yeah. At the very moment in, in the middle of March, probably all of April, I don't think we had the capacity because we were so in it to understand what was going on. It's like your adrenaline was so high. You're, you, you were so hyper aware of everything going on that it just you never turned that eye back on yourself to really process what was happening to the point where I think a lot of us put it all out there. Um, we went beyond our capacity to take care of our patients to the best of our abilities uh, at the risk of ourselves. A lot of us I think that was the big issue. Uh, We've worked more hours probably than ever even during residency I think I worked more hours during that month and a half period than I ever did in residency which is crazy and we did it without even thinking. We would just go to work, we would uh, do our decontamination routine, eat, sleep, go back to work. You know, it was just a very robotic thing for us at that time because that's all we knew, all we thought we could do at that time just go to work. I don't think it was until probably end of April as things were coming down and their impact on healthcare really personally took a toll. Um, I had one of my closest nurses get ill with COVID during that time. Um, her name is uh, Maria Gia. She was an amazing head nurse. I mean, you all know that head nurse that just gets stuff done, right? Like right. she was and that she didn't take any you know from anyone and just get it done, and she was that person. She was, like, your mom, your everything, your savior of the ER, and she got sick,
0: Mm.
2: and uh, she was, like, maybe probably a couple of years from retiring. She had a whole family in the Philippines. She was an amazing woman, and she got sick, and uh, she died that week, Um,
0: Mm.
2: and then a couple of days later... You know, everyone knows the name Dr. Lorna Breen, but to me, she was my attending and friend that I went snowboarding with, um, and mm-hmm. she committed suicide that same span of probably four days. Wow. And then, to make matters worse, we also lost another critical care intensivist. So, just the span of four days, we lost, I personally lost three very close people, work colleagues, friends, family. And I think that's when it hit, you know, that's, that's when it personally hit home.
0: Um, Right. Yeah. When you realize uh, this is, this is very proximate Mm -hmm. and I don't control this. Yeah. Wow. How are you doing with that now? I mean, it's not that long. It's not that long since. Yeah, it takes a it's really long time not. to process all of that.
2: Yeah, I um, I think it changed a lot of how we view medicine. Like, it makes you start questioning what is this all for? Like, what does medicine mean to you? Um, because all of these people were givers. They just put it all out there and. I think it makes you question, like, who am I doing this for? How do we make the biggest impact? And how do we keep their memory and their actions alive? You know? So how, it just kind of recalibrated what I wanted to do and kind of trimmed down that list. I'm sure all of us wear like a million hats. I kind of married condoed my hat because of that experience. I said, this is not worth it this is worth it, you know, this yeah. gives me joy, <laughs> you know? Like right. it, it this really, hat gives me
0: joy, yeah. this one doesn't, it's going right. in the trash.
2: Exactly, it really focused that, that feeling for me.
1: Talk about how you reconcile or rationalize then making those choices, yeah. because, you know, you, you said earlier on that one of the things you did at the beginning of the pandemic was sacrifice everything to put your patients first, and then as things developed and you saw the consequences of that, you start to trim away things and decide what you put first. Um, How do you, how do you make those decisions and and how, how have you found that process?
2: That's a great question. Um, So what's really interesting is that this experience probably has reinforced my love for medicine, like clinical medicine. Um, I Wear a ton of hats as like a clinical educator, so you know I I do a ton of simulation education work, and those were my accessory hats. And it really focused down on the projects that had either social impact or increased awareness of how social determinants of disease impact healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, how we really need to focus on human-centered healthcare care uh, and not this esoteric, <laughs> you know, processes and things like that. We really need to focus. It really made me realize how we need to value human capital, how we really, on the physician side, need to make sure that we are the best physicians we can be mentally, physically, physically. Um, capacity-wise, but also how are we best serving our patient uh, population? So that really narrowed down a lot of the projects that I was doing um, and helped me discard some of the hats that I wasn't... I was only doing probably because I was told to... I couldn't say no, and I was Mm -hmm. told to say yes. Uh, So it kind of gave me the courage to say hey, um, I just don't have the capacity to do this at this time. Thank you for the opportunity. I'm going to put this hat aside uh, and really engage myself in my passion projects, which involve more about building better residents, better attendings um, from a mental standpoint, from from an emotional standpoint, and also kind of delving into, are we really doing the best things for our community? Are we really aware of the things that go into our care of our patients in this black and and brown community? Um, So it really made me look into social EM um, as something that we really need to be aware of and implement in our healthcare system.
1: Yeah,
0: so that's a. I think that's a really important conversation about not only what are our values, but what are the values of the patients we serve and what is the value of, of healthcare in our community? And how can we as a six of the economy help to move the conversations that are surrounding those issues out in the community?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think how do we get the information out to this community, right? Like how do we best serve this community? Because if you look at the numbers for COVID, it was disproportionately the black and brown communities that were affected. So what is it and why is it? And how do we prevent that in the future of this disproportionate affect of 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 illness? You know, it's just, it's just something we really need to be cognizant of, and and um, have a moral responsibility towards as as physicians. I think.
0: Yeah. So, are you also seeing a similar shift in your colleagues who have been through this to to kind of reprioritize and and shift around their Marie condo their hats?
2: Yeah, I mean, as you know, I think physicians are. Uh, I say we're incredibly intelligent, uh, book smart, but we're probably emotionally not so smart, <laughs> unintelligent in a way. So it's been it's been interesting having the space to kind of talk about things like this. Um, I think we subconsciously probably are doing a lot of things or are feeling certain ways, but we're really not talking about it. Uh, we're really not comfortable talking about it. It's it's incredibly uncomfortable to turn that lens back on ourselves and say, hey, are we okay? Are we at our best? And are we doing the right things? Um, yeah. I'm having those conversations probably one-on-one, maybe with my residents, maybe with my work colleagues, but not on a global scale. So it's very hard to assess what's happening to physicians on a whole, because there's no such platform to comfortably do that um, or any efforts to really do that.
1: Jane, one of the things you're talking a lot about um, as we led into this was about uh, personal ways to uh, change one's life and change one's values and cope. And I'm really curious what your thoughts are on um, the Bigger issues, the systemic issues, the ways that we can use the system to improve the circumstance.
2: Wow. Um,
1: Sorry, I know it's a big question. Yeah, it's
2: a great. It's it's a great question um, because I think in the past couple of years, the medical community has where, uh, raised awareness of something called burnout. Uh, we've talked about it in a very almost unintelligent way that's kind of turned burnout, which is such an important issue, into something that, you know, viscerally turns physicians off. Um, Every time we hear that there's a talk about burnout, I think immediately you roll your eyes and you're like, I don't want to hear about eating well, sleeping well, and yoga. I'm just over it. (laughs) And and I feel like... (laughs) We're all laughing because...
1: We've heard it so, so many times. <laughs> so many
2: times. And you're over it, emotionally over it. But anyone who's gone through that experience knows how important it is. I mean, I think 2015 was the first time I experienced quote-unquote burnout. Um, it was the point where I think all of us kind of have been, which is, I'm overwhelmed. I'm even thinking about leaving medicine altogether, right? I think you, you are so well-trained. You, are, you're, you invest in yourself. You do all these things. And there comes a point in your life where you say, hey, I'm done. I'm, I'm out. Um, and whatever we call it, you know, I know, you know, Wendy calls it, you know, moral injury. I mean, we call it burnout, unwell, you know, whatever we call it that's the important issue that we need to tackle on a system basis uh, in a very intelligent way which you guys are doing. You guys are having the conversations, right? Like you, you're you raising awareness that this is a not only an individual thing where you change like eating well, sleeping well and going to yoga it's, it's beyond that, right? You have to talk about the healthcare system. What are the expectations of our patients? What are what are the what are the social determinants of disease? What what are the what are the things within healthcare? The insurance issues, uh, the compensation models, uh, all of these things that need to be addressed to help physicians not feel this way, not feel like just a cog in the system, but empowered to kind of enact the change that they want and they need. Right. So that's a million-dollar golden goose kind of question, like how do, we, how, do we, uh, how do we enact that change? How do we raise awareness? How do we cope? Because it's beyond ourselves. You know, that's the thing that COVID really brought to bear is how broken our system was and how we really don't invest in the human capital of healthcare, which is the people, the physicians, the nurses, the, the techs, the the cleaning guy you know like all of those people like we just don't invest in that you know we we are too patient forward we really need to kind of look into that human capital we need to invest in it we need to examine that as well and i think that that was laid bare by covid um and and i think this This entire podcast is the first step in the right direction, having the conversation, because, like I said, we're incredibly cerebrally intelligent people as a group. We're not emotionally intelligent. Um, We don't know how to start those conversations with ourselves, um, and we are uncomfortable engaging in mental health, uh, mental health professionals, even though we're healthcare professionals, we're very resistant to engaging in other people and asking for help to have these conversations.
0: And maybe, maybe at least there are, there's certainly a role for engaging with mental health care to keep ourselves well. But there's also, there's also some real benefit, I think, to engaging in what you alluded to, which is these larger conversations about what are all of us experiencing in healthcare? How are we each tripped up in a similar way, and how can we as clinicians find a safe space to start talking about those things that we know to be true and find a way to voice that which we know to be true in a way that other people can hear us and join in making change?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you know, it's not about sharing war stories. Like, no one needs to relive that one patient. (laughs) Um, right. That's probably not helpful. But what is helpful is normalizing this experience that I'm exhausted. You know, I'm probably more prickly and annoyed by certain things that that wouldn't have bothered me a year ago. Um, I think we need to normalize our feelings that we're experiencing now and then have these conversations about, okay, so what can we do what are you doing to make yourselves better? What am I doing to make myself better? Like how can we all as a group move forward rather than suffering silence by ourselves? And and I think that's that's the next step. That's that's the thing that needs to happen for us as physicians as a whole. And maybe include our colleagues, right? Our other healthcare colleagues as well. Nurses are suffering through the same thing too, if not more. Um, because they're so proximal to those these patients. You know, I've had conversations with um, clerks and PCAs, so physician care assistants. These people were, like, literally next to the patients that died from COVID. They all need to have have these conversations. But if we don't know how to start these conversations with ourselves and our own group, how are we going to have these larger, broad scale conversations to improve mm-hmm. all of us? That's the million dollar question.
0: Right. So finding a way and I, I think we're also clear that this this has impacted every level of healthcare. And so finding ways to bring people together in a safe way to start having those conversations, to learn where they are and then have those conversations is a would be a great a great way to start making change in healthcare. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Jane, I, I really appreciate you joining us here today. This has been a fantastic conversation, and we would love to stay in touch with you and um, continue the conversation at a later point.
2: Yeah, absolutely. This is, this is a lot of fun. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Jane. That was just a fantastic conversation with Jane. And I think one of the things that's worth highlighting is how important she sees the role of human capital and the role that we all play in um, highlighting the importance of moral injury as part of uh, mitigating moral injury.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think what I'm struck with over and over again, the more people that we talk with, is how profoundly these situations have impacted them not just not just on a on a personal wellness level but on this level of i'm hurting because i can't take care of people the way i would like to and it's caused me to really rethink how i approach my role as a physician my role as a person what i find what what my priorities are um going forward and how i'm how am i going to make an impact in a way that's meaningful to myself but also to others
1: and what's interesting about this is, at a podcast in the future, we're gonna be speaking with Carlina Rivera, who's one of the councilwomen uh, on the New York City Council. Um, and she's going to echo some of these comments about the importance of organizing and advocacy of physicians and nurses and healthcare workers in this whole area also.
0: And about how, how healthcare is bigger than just taking care of the patient in the moment. It's about thinking about the systems, it's about thinking how the systems can be more efficient or how resources can be better served in restructuring them and how we all really just need to think in a different way about how we want to deliver healthcare.
1: But thank you once again for joining us for Moral Matters.
0: You can find us at Facebook on Moral Injury of Healthcare.
1: Instagram, at Moral Injury.
0: And on Twitter. I am at WDeanMD. And I
1: am at Simon talbotmd. If you're listening to the podcast, please subscribe to upcoming episodes, rate us online, and review us.
0: So that others can find us.
1: Join us next time when we talk to Elena Perea, a psychiatrist in Western North Carolina.
0: Talk to you soon.